Hello, welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, and human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now, here's your host, two-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kosowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Millionaire Woman Show. I am super excited. I have a special guest for you today, Neville Joffrey spent more than 25 years in the manufacturing and distribution industry, having eventually discovered the initiative that was crucial to turn his 400 unionized member company back to sustainable profitability, was to implement an effective incentive plan ensuring that his employees understood the financial implications of their decisions. The positive results were powerfully impactful. Having sold his interest back to the original owner after eight years, he spent another two years developing and patenting an interactive and multi-sensory system for educating non-financial employees to be financially literate. His peers and clients have since regarded him as a world authority on the subject of bridging the gap between corporate financial goals and employee performance. Using his patent technology, Neville has trained internationally with many of the world's leading companies, various government sectors, and nonprofit organizations. He he has worked extensively with entrepreneurs and especially those in growth mode. He has written and published seven accounting and managerial textbooks that accompany his patent teaching method for use in community colleges, university, and pre-executive education programs, including Harvard Business School, where he also a case protagonist. Can't wait to learn more about that. (laughs) His creative style of education has won him numerous awards, including the conversion of his system into Braille for those visually impaired. His training peers have called him the trainer's trainer. He is motivating, passionate, humorous, engaging, and a compelling educator that will open your mind by providing you with stimulating and refreshing ideas that will generate sustainable financial results in your business. He is a keen amateur artist, writer, and an adventurous motorcycle rider. Recently, with a big trip from Romania, please welcome Neville Joffrey to the Millionaire Woman Show. Thank you so much, Deborah. It's a pleasure to see you and uh, and to communicate with your uh, with your listeners. Well, just give me a little bit of background. I'm so grateful that you're on the show. You have such a diverse background and hobbies, and that personal and business life to help them get to know a little bit more about what you do and really share with us. What got you involved in business altogether? Uh, Deborah, so as you can hear from my funny accent, I'm from South Africa. And uh, I was imported to Canada. I was imported to Canada 30 winters ago and still counting. Um, and uh, I used to be in the textile, clothing and textile industry. I have a manufacturing uh, background and an accounting. So I was an ideal fit to restructure a vertical manufacturing company uh, that was had some financial problems. So uh, one of the initiatives uh, that I instituted in the business 
was an open book environment and giving our employees a share of the profits. Because in those days, in the early 90s, we were in double digit uh, inflation. And we had just gotten into free trade with Mexico. So how does one compete with $4 an hour labor? And we were going bankrupt. Um, so we didn't have much of a choice, but you change the agreement with the union. I said, look, if I sign this agreement, we will go bankrupt. So let's think about a creative way of solving this problem. Because I have a philosophy that nobody washes a rented car. <laughs> there's no sense, there's no sense of ownership, right? Right. So um, I started teaching the principles of business acumen and, and what they needed to do to improve the profits of the business. But it was like pulling teeth. Oh my, I used to have hair in those days, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough trying to communicate these abstract subjects to people who were skilled in other areas of the business. So I, out of desperation, I, I cashed a thousand dollars in small bills and I put them into black garbage bags. So I called a meeting with all my employees and my partners. I said, now I'm going to give you a business acumen lesson you will never forget. And I poured out all this cash on the table. Everyone looked at it. And I took handfuls of cash into pre-labeled buckets called, and I said, this is called revenue. Oh, really? Yeah, this is revenue. Then I took handfuls of cash into buckets called labor, fabric, rent. And then I had some $20 bills in my pocket and I started tearing them up and I put them in a bucket called waste. And people were freaking out. I said, why are you freaking out? You do this every day. You don't see it. Wow. I did. I taped them together again, but hey. <laughs> right. You created a visual so they could actually yeah. see it. It's yeah. just like people going to the debit machine or using credit cards. They don't see the money leaving. Exactly. So the cash was left and I said, this is called profit. And I cut the pile in half. I said, this half is for the owners of the business in return for this big investment to keep this company open. And the other half is for all of you to share equally between each other. It was a remarkable transformation because I started changing the performance indicators and the numbers they could understand. And I wasn't a trained instructor in those days. I, you know, I was just doing this by route. I was building the plane while I was flying it. But within three years, long story short, within three years, this company had zero debt. Zero. And they made way, way more money through this program, this incentive, than they could ever have earned through union negotiations. And after my eighth year in the company, um, I sold my equity back to the original owner. And realizing the power of business acumen and financial literacy, um, and realizing how hard this was to communicate, I developed and patented what was, it was a board game, it's not a game anymore, it's not a teaching tool to teach business acumen and financial literacy to non-financial people in companies. And over the years, the company grew and eventually became an academic company for universities and colleges. And we still continue uh, where my core, my, my core love lies, which is educating entrepreneurs in corporations. So Neville, you, you got to tell me how that felt to watch these people have those aha moments. Well, you know, it's interesting you asked me that question because I, I, you know, in the beginning, there was a lot of doubt. And my partner, my founding partner, who was a lot older than me um, at the time, he still is, <laughs> uh, he was a lot older than me and came from a different generation. And he wasn't, there was a bit of a conflict in between because he didn't want this open book environment. He didn't want financial transparency. So there was a lot of people very subdued, not wanting to react to this. There's a lot of suspicion. 
But eventually when people started talking about their numbers and there was a lot of debate and in fact, some arguments, but there were healthy arguments mm-hmm. about the pricing. No, you cannot sell at this price for the salespeople. Um, you know, we've got to look at our product mix and we make money out of this product. And we work. It was remarkable. And the first year, admittedly, I have to, for the interest of transparency, I winked the numbers a little bit because I wanted to give them a bonus, even though they didn't really earn most of it. Mm-hmm. But they really, they deserved it, but they hadn't earned it. There's a difference. Right. And I pay them bonuses to encourage them. And after that moment, Deborah, it was like music. I used to walk around this factory every Monday morning looking at the previous week's numbers on flip charts. It was remarkable. I, it's just, I'll never forget that moment. I'm so pleased you asked me that question because it brings back. They were invested. They were invested in the company that it, they, it was almost like they were an owner. And they were. They were. They had a piece of action. They were absolute owners. And it was remarkable. You know what's interesting? That the blue-collar workers were learning as quickly and even faster than some of our white-collar people. They just got it. It was so intuitive for them. It was amazing. It was remarkable. So I always say never underestimate the intelligence of people regardless what their role is in your business. So let me ask you, was there um, an overflow or a ripple effect to their own personal finances as well? You know, I don't know that. All, all I can tell you is that this certainly made them a lot richer. Yeah. They earn way more. This is something interesting that happened, actually. Now that you've asked me this question, it comes to mind. In those days, we used to pay everything by check. There was no direct transfers. It was all done by check. And we had a number of employees. It's funny, it comes to mind as you ask me that question. A number of employees who, who would ask me, Neville, could you please ensure that we get a separate check for their bonus because the culture of many of these people who came from Europe and so on, their culture was they had family living with them and they all shared resources. However, the bonus in their view, and I only learned this at that time, I had no idea. They said the bonus belongs to me. This is for my extraordinary effort. This doesn't belong to anybody else. And they, wow. and we gave them a separate check. So in answer to your question, I suspect absolutely. That makes a big difference now, yeah. like when you think about it, because a yeah. lot of these individuals, they do send money overseas, um, you know, and supporting family locally, but overseas yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So what drives you to do what you do? I know you shared a little bit, but what's that intrinsic motivation that you have that keeps you jumping out of bed every morning? Um, you know, I've, I've retired twice. I, am, I retired when I sold my manufacturing company. That is in 1997. And when I developed my, my publishing company, teaching business literacy, it grew over 22 years. And I took on a group of investors uh, 12 years ago, and I sold my, most of my equity to my, to my investors uh, about four years ago. Uh, with a royalty, I get royalties on my books and so on. And I retired again. I thought, you know, I've still got some runway left in me. And what gets me out of bed in the morning is you look on people's faces or the feedback that I get, how people's lives have changed as a result of seeing their businesses and what drives the economic wealth from a totally different point of view. I get such a kick out of it. And I just know that there are so many people, if they were just, you know, Deborah, when I've uh, surveyed not only entrepreneurs, but non-financial 
C-level executives in corporation, do you know that the level of business acumen and financial literacy is less than 40%? Wow. Less than. Basic, I'm talking about basic stuff. Like, yeah. for example, I'll ask them, what happens to your net worth when you pay off your debt? Most people will tell you it goes up or down. Well, guess what? It doesn't change. Your cash goes down, your debt goes down, your net worth doesn't change. It's a cash flow issue. I'm talking about this level of simplicity. People have never thought to even ask these questions. Yes. So when I see the lights going on and I see people embracing what most people think of accounting and finance, oh my God, it's like, it's like, it's like a fall. It's like I have leprosy. They don't come near me. You know, <laughs> like, seriously, yeah. come on. They realize the power of the numbers. They realize the power of the numbers and the power of this kind of knowledge, how it can change the economic lives. And I'm not looking to make people into experts in accounting. I'm really not. It's not about that. It's about having the right questions to ask. Yeah. What is and it about the numbers that they get so scared to know them? You know why? It's taught so poorly. This is why we, and I wish, I wish every school in North America would use my system, of course, <laughs> then I'd be rich. But, but putting that aside, it's taught so poorly because a lot of these teachings are, are teacher-centric, not student-centric, despite what the instructors talk about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in fact, I'll, your listeners can, can make a note of this. I'm not going to expand on it, but just as a point of reference. There's a, there's a system, there's a, a, a philosophy that was developed by a lady by the name of Elizabeth Newton. Elizabeth Newton, as in Newton's Third Law. She, she came, developed a system during a PhD called Tappers and Listeners. She's, she's a psychologist in communication. And she said, if, if I were to ask people who are tapping the rhythm of a song, how many of the listeners would guess the song? She did an experiment. They said, well, at least 50% would guess the song. So she did an experiment and she said, who would guess the song? Any idea? 45. In, in my mind, it's as clear as day what that represents. It's actually a happy birthday. Okay, I'm a lousy clapper. What can I tell you? But in, <laughs> But in my mind, it's as clear as day. And you call this the curse of knowledge because only 4% of people guess it. Really? 4%. And that is a problem with a lot of people that teach accounting and business acumen and these kinds of subjects. The instructor, because it's intuitive for them, they forget what it's like for people who don't have this knowledge. That is why people are scared of it because it's taught so poorly. That is the reason why. And there's no need for this to be intimidating. There really isn't. It's actually more remarkably simple than people allow, them, allow themselves to think. It really is. Yeah. There's no need for it. And there is power in the numbers. And I've seen transformations in companies that are quite remarkable when people learn to understand that their financial statements is their scorecard. Imagine playing a game of hockey and not keeping score. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The businesses are no different. So how does one improve one's economic wealth and one's lifestyle and one's financial freedom for one's business, regardless how big or small it is? It doesn't matter. If we don't understand the financial implications of what we do, it's called managing expectations. Mm-hmm. So some of the number part I know can be quite intense for people. Mm-hmm. What do you do to relax? Cause I know you could be playing with numbers all the time, but what do you do on the off off time? So I'm going to answer this in two parts. Firstly, I'm going to tell you it's not actually about the numbers. It's about principles. Okay. Because I work with a lot of engineers and I can tell you the engineers who are mass smart, ask them to write an algorithm, terrific. Ask them to understand a balance sheet, it's like their brains fell out. So it's not, it's not about numbers, it's about principles. Okay. So I don't want people to so say, you've got calculators to work out numbers. It's not about that, largely, largely about principles. But 
So I'm an A-type personality, like really serious. <laughs> so relax. Actually, I do relax. I, I love reading. I'm a prolific reader. Um, I, I love art. I, I, I do paint. I'm not very good at it, but I, I paint because I enjoy it. It's relaxing. I like the creative side. And in the summer, I ride my motorcycle. I do long distances. I rode to Alaska and back a couple of years ago, and there was uh, 18,000 kilometers. I loved every moment wow. of it. So, yeah, so I, I, that's what I do. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been married for 42 years, so I spend a lot of time with my wife. Does she ride my motorcycle too? She rides in the back. Yeah. I have a little t-shirt that says, if you can read this, granny fell off. Yeah, <laughs> 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 no, she rides in the back. Yeah, she rides in the back with me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as we tour around, so we, we love the summers. We take lots of time off. And, um, yeah, but, uh, I, I'm enjoying the stage of my life. It's lovely. I, I'm very passionate about what I do. And I love to see other people benefit from my 40 plus years of, of experience. Well, I'm grateful that we were able to catch you between trips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you have any entrepreneurial role models? Yes. Uh, Richard Branson. This guy's real. I mean, think about Richard Branson. He had limited education. He's dyslectic. And this man has built a multi-billion dollar empire. And the reason why he's like my hero, if you will, is because he just walks the talk. This guy just does what he said he's going to do. Yeah. And he's built the most unbelievable culture throughout his organizations. And he's built lots of you know, Virgin Airlines. And, you know, I mean, well, you know the story with Richard Branson's here. So I, I regard this man as an absolute entrepreneur. Um, on steroids. <laughs> so what would be one thing that he does that you internalize and maybe emulate in what you do? Well, he's a very good delegator. And you don't build multi-billion dollar corporations like that on your own. You need the right people. Secondly, mm -hmm. he just does it. So, you know, when he's got an idea, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not even a tiny little fraction of what's he has built, but the principles are the same. He says, just do it. You know, he has an idea. He runs it past his people. And I do this routinely. And if you have an idea, just go for it. But what happens is people tend to build their business plans before they've actually realized there's actually a need for what they do. And this is one of the things he does. He first establishes a need. Is there a need for this? Do we have a solution? And start building it. And mm -hmm. stop looking for perfection all the time. That was one of the big mistakes I've made historically, Deborah. I used to look for the perfection and I could have got to market way quicker with a lot of the things that I've created and developed over the years with the different business ventures. But just started getting out in the market and don't worry about the perfection. Just tell people, look, I know there's some errors in this. It's okay. Yeah. But test the market and get out early. Stop hanging on to your idea and never getting out with it. Just go out there. And that's what he tends to do. And also know when to cut your losses. He's very good at that. It's not working. Sometimes you must go with your gut and, you know, keep at it. Listen, you know how many people said to me, never get yourself a real job. What are you messing around? Um, I've got a picture here. In fact, I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, it's actually on my board. This is in 1997. Look here. See, I had hair. I told you I had hair. <laughs> that is in 1997. I was cutting and pasting board games and stuff on my, uh, on my table tennis table in my basement. And people kept saying to me, you know, Give yourself a real job. I said, no, I know there's a market for this. I'm going to keep at it and keep at it. And yeah. I did. But sometimes you also have to know when you cut your losses. 
How did you deal with the naysayers who doubt, doubt, had that doubt and they are planting those seeds? You know, some of you are going to just fall through a doubt. I said, yeah, 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 maybe you're right, but I'm going to keep the editor a bit more. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate that I had the resources, having sold my business, to hang on for a couple of years and do this. Not everybody has the luxury of doing that. I was mm -hmm. blessed that I could. Um, but there is, instead of buying another business, that was my capital, was supporting my family and just putting money into this thing. Um, but yeah, I just had to ignore it. And it's just tempting sometimes. And you know what is interesting? A lot of people gave me other kinds of board games to copy. I said, I would not even open them because first of all, any idea that I'm going to grab is going to become plagiarism. And secondly, it will never be original. I want this to be mine. I want this to be original. Mm -hmm. But I want you to do the wrong thing more efficiently. I want this to be mine. Yeah. So yes, it's very tempting to listen to all these no's, but you've got to filter out the negative noise. If you really are determined and you've got to go with your gut, it tells you I've got something here and I'm going to keep at it, keep at it. But be prudent. Yeah. Just be, pay attention to your own finances, making sure you know your personal numbers so that you don't put everything else in jeopardy, right? Well, there is one thing I want to share with you listeners an answer to that. You know, when you're doing this on your own and somebody's single, you have no other financial responsibility to anybody, do whatever you want. But when other people are involved, it could be family, you've leveraged your home, it could be kids, it could be partners, it could be investors, it could be banks. If somebody else is involved, the risk profile needs to change, which is not only about you, it's about other people as well. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing to remember. What difficulties did you have to overcome as you started various of uh, various businesses? I think one of them is just getting on with it. You know, that is a big difficulty, just actually getting on with it and evaluating is this actually viable or not? That's a big one. Second one is time. You know, when you're doing this on your own, I've been on the road, built a lot of companies and I tell you, and I, and I empathize with a lot of your listeners and people who are entrepreneurs it's a bit of a catch-22 because you cannot hire someone until you have the money and you don't have the money until you hire someone. So you're in a bit of a dilemma. It's a conundrum. Mm -hmm. You find yourself working 24 hours a day. One of the big challenges to me, I had three young children at the time, is you've got to have time out for your family. It's family first, number one. Um, and my wife and I had agreed when I started my business, it's got to be time. I'll always, always... Well, there was odd exceptions. I'll, I'll take that back. There's odd exceptions, but always, as long as in my control, I had dinner with my family. That was my family time. That was, we didn't have cell phones in the early days. There was nothing to look at, but it was family time. Number two, had to take time off. As tempting as it was going out to the ski hills with the kids taking a laptop, no. I had a certain time, because if you don't take time to refresh and to get your mind in balance, it becomes very stressful, and that's when things start going wrong. So the biggest difficulty I had in both all three of companies that I started and, and founded and built, the biggest challenge I had was managing my own time and giving some Neville time and family time because that is so, so important. Um, yeah, those, those are the, to me, balancing, it's a balancing act was one of the hardest to deal with. So now, if you were to give any advice to someone new in the age of social media, and yeah. carrying those cell phones around and yeah. computers or iPads, what would you tell them? Wherever you are, just be there. Wherever you are, be there. You know, there's a lots of talk nowadays, and I'll see lots of blogs around about uh, about um, behaviors at dinner tables. It's scary. You go to a restaurant and people, you've got two or three couples and they're busy looking at their phones. I see kids. When I, when I, saw, I, saw, I went to a party with my grandkids. 
a couple of years ago. And here I see these, these kids sitting at a party in a restaurant all sitting on their phones and their iPads. It's terrible. So those people in the IT business or use, use a lot of IT, um, there's nothing like basics, getting back to basics, and it's just, cur it's just, curbing, just curbing the use of, of, of getting buried in, in computers. You know, we can have all these great ideas, and I want to be a little more specific in answer to your question, if I may. Sure. What happens is it's so hard to lift up that phone and make a phone call about a sale. It weighs 5,000 pounds, right? Yes. Hard to pick it up. So the people who don't want to pick it up and don't want to do the things that they're not good at tend to hide behind the computers. Mm -hmm. Businesses are run when you're out in the market. Um, there's an old expression, and I'm trying to think who was it, Peter Sengage maybe, um, contrary but it comes to but I remember it's, it's MBWA, management by walking around. Yes. It doesn't have to be walking around in a factory or walking around but walking around in the market, you've got to get out there. Things don't happen behind your desk, except there are certain professions, maybe it does. But get out there. Switch off the computer. Get out to the market. Find out what people want. Communicate and talk. Forget about the IT. Get out there and talk and communicate with people. Step number one, to prove the viability of what you do and start getting a sense for that passion and feel for your ideas. Very powerful. So did you have any doubts that delayed you moving and going after starting your business nothing zero nada because i knew that i wasn't a solution trying to find a problem mm. there was a problem and i had to find a solution yeah I, I, think, want... I think people have a a lot of people have it the other way around that they feel like they have the solution without seeking the pain point first yeah and trying to find the problem and is also why well, I never had any doubt because I knew that using this interactive tearing up money and, and getting into the headspace of my constituents, which my employees, was very powerful because teaching it in the way that I'd learned it was not working. And I realized, whoa, this is, this is hard work and I changed. And I put my mind behind the eyes of others. Mm -hmm. you know, there's an expression, there's an expression, that you, you know, you've, heard, you've heard of Lily Tomlin, have you? The comedian? No, Lily Tomlin. She's a she's a comedian from the old school, and she once said, "When you're in the rat race and you win the race, you're still a rat." True. <laughs> and what you may and what I and the, what I use uh, that parable, if you will, or that statement is that there's no point in doing the wrong thing more efficiently. I use this term again by trying to copy what somebody else has done and trying to do it better when their solution is not solving the problem. Find a creative way of solving a problem, but not by copying what somebody else does. Find that differentiation. And that differentiation between what somebody else is doing versus what you do to solve a customer's problem, that is your, that is your differentiator, and that becomes your value proposition. But don't go out to market and start trying to solve problems unless you've defined your differentiation. So when I went out, I knew there was this massive need because I turned this multi-million dollar business around from near bankruptcy to a world-class performer. And to this, to this very day now, 23 years later, world-class producer. Why? Because everyone not only had a stake in it, but they understood the financial implications of what they did. And I talked it to them using a, a non-traditional methodology. And that was what I took to market. That's what I developed because I knew the traditional way wasn't working. Now, this is pretty extreme. But lots of your listeners out there, I'm sure, have some creative ideas 
there are millions of ideas, um, Deborah. You know, I belong to a group, and it's, and it's interesting for people to actually listen to Dragon's Den and stuff. I belong to a group, it's an angel investors group. Where I invest in small businesses, and I act as an advisory capacity to small startups who have taken money on from investors. The amount of ideas out there is remarkable. I'm fascinated. The amount of ideas, it's unbelievable. There are thousands and thousands of ideas and no question that your listeners have some unbelievable ideas. But my message to your listeners is this, make sure that you differentiate yourself from whoever's doing whatever you're doing, because there's very little that hasn't been done before. Just differentiate it. And that becomes your value proposition. And, it, and give me the slightest differentiation that makes you different. It could be in delivery. It could be in product. But it's about the impactfulness because difference for the sake of difference is not what's important. Right. Um, you know, I do quite a lot of work for large corporates. And my value proposition for large corporates is this. Do your investors really care about what you do? Actually, they don't. They really don't care about what you do, save for a few of them. What they really care about is how much money they're making from the investment. That's what they care about. So we as entrepreneurs, all passionate, when I took my investors on in my companies, both of them, and I say, oh, well, this is what I do. Yeah, they're sort of interested, but they don't really care. What they really care about is, is balancing the budget. And how do I know this? Because every time I went to a boardroom and I didn't balance my budget, I felt like I was going into my school principal's office when I messed up at school. Because you're going to get hell, right? So, but... And there's no difference, there's no difference when we're looking for differentiation in our product. It's not about what we think is change for the sake of change. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you clearly define the incremental benefit that our solution will produce for the user versus the incumbent or somebody else? Mm -hmm. And in the absence of being able to document and prove with some level of evidence, hopefully, yeah. That what yeah. you're doing is different from everybody else. You don't have a business case because you're just competing on price. That's what you're doing. You don't want to do that. Right. Kind of as like that blue ocean strategy. Exactly right. Yeah. Large, largely, yes. Yeah. Yes. So I know you shared a few tips already, but are there some things that you um, put in place before you started your businesses so that people who are ready to take the first step have an idea of some of the things they should be doing? Well, you know, I, I've, I've started a new, you're going to think I'm crazy. I just started a whole new division of my business now where I'm building an online platform it's called the Collaborative Learning Platform for, for teaching what we do, what I do now using Zoom environment yeah. Um, yeah. to the masses. But this is a very expensive business because I'm building a, a this, this platform is, um, is, a, is a content management system with affiliate programs. This is an expensive business. Uh, not only producing this, but, but redoing all the webinars. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work in something like this. Mm -hmm. So if I have your question correct, what I did is in preparation for this is went out and did some studies and said, is there a market for this? What are the price points? Can we find affiliates who are willing to resell for us? Because I'm not going out there, so I'm making phone calls. This is not the way to do it. So the preparation in going out to make sure that, number one, you have a product, but who's willing to buy it? What are the price points? Understand your costings. Understand what it's going to cost you to get to market. Do you have enough cash flow to do this? And whatever you think it's going to cost, double it. Seriously. And know we're going to draw the line. We run out of money and make sure that I have, I have some available credit or available resources that can help top this up if I need it. 
You don't do this when you're in trouble. You do this in the beginning. Right, right. So get out there with some passion and find out, number one, the market. Number two, the, well, the, vi the viability. Then you want to make sure that you can sell this making money and be very conservative. Because entrepreneurs, and I'm no different, have this incredible optimism that can be so dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's really what we want to see, right? And until you're going to sign the check until the bank calls you. So be conservative, be aggressive, but be conservative and realistic and know where you're going to draw a line. But do your homework before you go out there. So uh, how did you harness your optimistic side? Oh, my bank balance told me that lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I decided on how long I wanted to go to markets. And I thought I'd get to markets in the first year, but I really didn't. It took me actually two years. But I knew it onto something because the interest level was high, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't sort of make it. Uh, I didn't see my first invoice for two years, but the interest level was high and I knew I had more work to do on the, on the delivery of the program. But again, I was blessed because I had the, I had the run rate with the cash flow that I'd allowed for this. Right. But I did say to myself, and I spoke to my wife, if I cannot get this thing off the ground with a reasonable, with a reasonable level of, um, of not, not optimism, I was always optimistic, but, of reality, if I couldn't see some reality coming out of this, where I can, when I can see, I have a line of sight to actually generating revenues. I am going to call it, yes, and I am yes. going to get a job, um, and I'll keep this in the background. But I'll go out there and start making money. And I did set a two-year limit, and I sort of. So did you did that thought of getting a job? Was that like a deterrent, like that drove you oh, to work even harder? You have no idea what a deterrent that was. <laughs> I had, I've never had sleepless nights over making money because it's not an arrogant statement, but I lived on credit cards for a long time. It never worried me because I knew that I'll get through this. I'm going to manage it. I'm going to handle it. I knew the rules. What scares me is getting a job. Yeah. That scares me because I'm a free-spirited type of individual and I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I love building things. And I'm not a kind of person who can be subordinated in a business. It's just not me. If right. you type the wings of an eagle, it's going to die. And it's just not my idea. A lot of people, this is their DNA, and I respect it. And I've employed lots of people. But free-spirited entrepreneurship is made of a certain type of state of mind. It's not for everyone. So, yeah, a job wasn't for me. Yeah, because I've heard I the same thing that it's either a job or when people want to have a task done, that they write a check to an organization that they don't or believe in. Yeah. And those two things are very much a deterrent from them and keeping them focused, yeah. pushing through any resistance that they feel. Exactly. And, and, that, was the, and that was a real motivating, motivating me because I made a promise to my wife. I said, I will not go past two years on this. Or if, if I don't see a line of sight in this, I'm not going to chew up our savings you know, and risk the risk of the family on this. So we you know we have three boys still to go to university and, you know, and yeah. Had to be had to be proven to the point I made earlier on about other the other stakeholders. Yeah, right. So how do you push through resistance when resistance comes up? Um, I I use visualization a lot. Okay. I try and visualize. Not always successful, but for the most part, I have my dream room. This is like my dream room. I mean, I this is my middle room. Um, and I, I really sit down and looked at the pros and cons. Um, look at the pros and cons. Say, well, look, I know that I'm going to hit some resistance because I'm, I'm having, a, I'm terribly frustrated because of technology. Well, I cannot find someone to help me do X, Y, and Z. And I've been down the road a lot where I just, I'm stuck. I just don't know how to deal with this. So I'm a strong believer in a concept called the theory of constraints. The theory of constraints. There was a book written. 
by a gentleman, his last name is Goldrat, double T at the end, Goldrat, called The Goal, G-O-A-L. And it speaks of, it's actually a management book written in the form of a love story. Oh. And it's a prerequisite reading in all the Ivy League business schools in North America. You go to Harvard for an MBA, you read the book. And it speaks about the theory of constraints. So what I do is I write down all the constraints that are standing in my way. Okay. It's about bottlenecks. The chain is only as strong as the weakest link. Right. So you can, you, can, you can budget to sell 100 widgets. If you only got enough hours to service 90, you're only going to sell 90. If you've got enough raw material for 80, you're only going to sell 80. It doesn't matter because that's a constraint. So what I do is, Deborah, I write down all the processes. This is my manufacturing side coming out, I guess. All the elements from beginning right through to the end of the project. Right. And I want to and I identify what are my constraints. If the constraint me is time, I've got to find someone to, to help me. If the constraint is doing is finding out about technology, then find someone who can help me do it. So I identify the constraints. And you can only accelerate the process, the throughput, if you will, when you mm -hmm. eliminate the constraint. If I'm not able to resolve that, then that, that ceiling that I hit, if you will, I've got to pull out because I cannot resolve the constraint. So the theory of constraints as a thought process, what are the bottlenecks? Yeah. Crucial. And write them down. Write down no matter how minor it is. You know, in an electronic circuit, you can have a, a microscopic break in electronic circuit at one work. You can't even see it with the naked eye. Won't work. So make a note of every single element that you think. It's called process mapping. Every single element of what you need to do to get your project done and on time. Yeah. And any of the constraints that may stand in the way, no matter how small, could potentially stop you from getting there. So unless you elevate the constraint, it's not going to get done. And that's hugely helpful. I'm going to have to get that book now. <laughs> I get it. It's, it's, it's written in, the, in a manufacturing setup. Yep. But the, the concept and the principles of the theory of constraints, yeah. I mean, I use it in my manufacturing company. I use it in my publishing company all the time. We want to sell more books. Well, what are the constraints? Well, we haven't got enough people, enough customers. Well, go out and get more. Haven't got enough salespeople. Okay, so you deal with what you've got. Right. And it's written in the form of a parable. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's like a love story. It's, it's, okay. ama it's, an, ama it's an amazingly well-written book. The author died. He was the author was an Israeli physicist. Okay. He wasn't a businessman. He was a physicist. Oh wow! Yes, a well-known physicist. His first name is Eliyahu, Eliyahu Goldratt, the goal. And he's a physicist, and he wrote a book on physics around the around the goal and the theory of constraints. But the way he presents it using this parable is absolutely brilliant. Wow. Okay, it's on my so list. Yeah, it's just in a, in a half a minute or one minute description talking about theory of constraints. I've actually communicated the main message of what this book's actually all about. For sure. Thank you. You're welcome. Is culture important when you're building your business? Culture is everything. Culture is everything. It really is. I, I mean, being financially literate or understanding the implication of financial numbers. Yeah, that's big. But culture is everything. And I'm so pleased you asked this question because, you know, I work with large and small corporations alike, and I've often said to people sitting in a room or my webinars, how many of you listening to this talk are willing to take the risk and forfeit your paycheck or a month's pay to, in favor of your customer if you didn't consistently deliver what you promise? Mm -hmm. And I might people laugh, are you crazy? I would never do that. 
Okay, I'll ask you the next question. If you are willing to do that because you are so sure that you always deliver what you promise, do you believe you could earn premium prices in a competitive market? And without, well, there's the odd exception, the, the pessimist. But for the most part, people say, yeah, sure. Then why don't you do it? Just do it. That, Deborah, is culture. Yeah, that's, that's being committed. Part. Yes, just do as you say you're going to do. Not only you, everyone in your organization, just do what you say you would do. And if you cannot do it, say so. It's better to lose a deal than lose a customer. And customers will respect you for it. So you know what, uh, customer, I know you need a delivery by Thursday. What can I do it for Thursday? I can work overtime. No matter what, I'd, I cannot get the, I've looked at all the constraints. Mm -hmm. I cannot elevate any of the constraints. I cannot get it by Thursday. I can get it to you by Friday, but not Thursday. They will have, and they said, look, you know what, Neville, I need it for Thursday. I have an event. I said, you know what, I have to turn this order down. I cannot get it. I wish I could, but I cannot do it. I will not make a promise to you that I cannot keep. They will have more respect for you than if you take the order and deliver on Friday. Simple example, but and all the listeners should remember this and test it. I've been on this road, and believe me when I tell you, I've had my share of moments where I've been very embarrassed. Because I've made commitments because I didn't want to lose the order and my staff made commitments, didn't want to lose the order and we messed up. And I have to tell you, it's not pretty. I can look at a balance sheet on anybody's company and when I see, and I can tell you about the culture when I look at the accounts receivable outstanding. So what, why? Well, anyone who's taking 90 days to pay you, let's just find an excuse. When you deliver what you promise consistently, all mm -hmm. the time, they will pay you before the ink is dry or the invoice because they need you. When you mess them around and you don't deliver what you said and you're just one of any number of vendors without differentiation, so why should they pay you? It's free credit. Do as you say you're going to do. Create that culture of commitment and create that kind of culture and organization. A lot of good things happen. Right. Because those are those unwritten, unwritten agreements or written agreements that that commitment to others is something that we really strive toward, but it's yep. also thinking about you're making that commitment to yourself to deliver on your word. Yes. And accountability. Yes. It's all about culture. It's such a wonderful question. You asked me, it's all about culture. Yeah. It really is. And, and by the way, uh, the bottleneck starts at the top of the bottle. Yeah. Because say the fish rots from the head down. I See, and I, I never, I never thought of accountability as being associated with culture. So I, I find that fascinating. That's fantastic. Totally. People should be accountable. Yes. You know, I have no problem when a person makes an error, makes a mistake, because to me, that's a learning experience. Right. And accept accountability and they deal with it. Somebody produced, I've had situations in my factory when I've had a supervisor call a customer. Yes. I bet the supervisor, I said, now, don't ask me to call the customer. You made me a promise you would deliver. Here's the phone. Call the customer. I call the customer. Right. And you apologize. Because I'm not going to do it on your behalf. You are accountable. And tears rolling. I said, you phone the customer and do it. I won't do that again. Now you know how I feel. I'm embarrassed. It's and kind it's of like the... I make them accountable. It's kind of like the wrath that you might get, Neville, if you didn't phone home if you're going to be late for supper. Something like that. But you know, <laughs> something like that. But I want you know people cannot behind hide behind hide behind others. 
It's all right. about accountability. And I don't do this to be cruel. I was very kind to my people. Again, we shared the profits. Sure. I said, but what you're doing is not fair. It's not fair to the others in the organization. You're accountable. There's a lot of, a lot of apologies went on in my companies. Mm-hmm. You're accountable. You made a mistake. It's fine. Learn from it. But don't hide it. Don't sweep these things under the carpet. Deal with it. Learn from it. So I, I like how you are positioning mistakes as something to learn from. Because I know people get caught up and stuck in that they failed at something and then they lose all their momentum because they're stuck in failure versus yeah. looking at what I can do to learn from this or they don't want to take ownership because yeah. it the shame and guilt behind yeah. that. I have a belief. I don't believe that anyone, whether you're in school, university, job, you don't go to work or to school to fail with that intent. Right. We go to work or to school, whatever, to do okay, to do well. To pass, call it what you will, but not to fail. That's not with intent. So unless it's dishonorable intent where somebody is sabotaging, then that's a different consequence. Then we deal with that. Mm-hmm. But to me, mistakes is a learning, is a learning experience because you all make them. I, would, I could write a book on my mistakes. And I'm <laughs> embarrassed. I'd be embarrassed to share some of them with you. Honest to God, I yeah. But we learn from it. And as long as our people are living, I've also had a situation where I have an open door policy, but never ever come to my office and complain about something unless you are willing to partake in the discussion with the solution. I'm not suggesting you have to find the solution. And if you don't find the solution, that's okay, because I'm not expecting you to. I mean, hopefully we'll find it. But be willing to partake in a discussion about the solution. Then to me, you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Exactly. exactly. And that's a philosophy I've had in all my companies over all yeah. the years. So knowing what you know now of all the years of experience, is there anything that you would have done differently to give us a a shortcut in diving into taking those next steps? Yeah, just do it. If you have this passion and belief, find out the viability and just get on with it and don't look for for perfection all the time. Those, Those things in art, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me a question like that. With any entrepreneur, because we plan and plan and plan and plan. Business plans, you know, I mean, pages of business plans and none of it works at the end of the day because it's going to change the next day. So forget about all these fancy business plans. Really. You know, I know banks will say, give me a business plan. You know, it's all a lot of, it really is a lot of nonsense. And that's just to get the loan. Because these fancy business plans don't mean a hell of a lot. Yes, you need to do your cash flows. You need to know where you're going to stand. Your inflows and your outflows. That's absolutely number one. Get your cash flow. How much I'm putting in, how much is flowing out, what's my balance going to be, and what's the financial impact, and then double it up to make sure you have enough cushion. But just get on with it. Just get on with it. Stop trying to find perfection and writing up your business plans because the next day when you start your business, everything's going to change because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And it's almost like a form of their own resistance because they think they need to know more, they need to read more books, and then what they do is they don't implement or take action. Well, that's exactly right. You know, the word fear is an acronym. There's lots of acronyms for it. I love the acronym or fear, false evidence appearing real. Yeah. So we have this fear picking up the phone to make a sales call. I know it's not everybody's thing, right? I mean, I'm not expecting, but to get out there and start getting on with it. And once you're in it and you see people accepting what you're doing, it's very motivating. Let's just get on with it. Yeah. And, and stop hiding behind the IT as we alluded to earlier on your computers business plans and all this stuff. Just get out there and start doing it. Yeah. Roll up your sleeves and get on with it. Really. Well, the next question is one of my favorites because I love change because change represents progress. 
Um, life is made up of constant change, whether we like it or not. And the yeah. only constant is change. How do you keep up with change? Well, I admit my shortcomings. I have a seven-year-old grandson. He says, Grandpa, you're really silly. You don't know how to use an iPad. I said, Joe, you know what? You're absolutely right. I don't know how to use an iPad. I am silly. So I accept my shortcomings because IT is changing all the time. Technology is changing all the time. There's new and bright ideas changing, coming out all the time. There are new competitors coming out with ideas all the time. And to your point, Deborah, yes, there's perpetual change. We cannot be good at everything. So to manage change, I know where my shortcomings are. I know where my constraints are. So I make sure that I find other people. It doesn't mean I employ people on a full-time basis. You don't want to do that. But there are always resources out there, somebody who can help you to get past those constraints, to manage, to help with those changes. I have some wonderful people who work with me and I'm calling them and driving them crazy, I mean, constantly. I say, look, you know, I don't know how to do this. There's something that's changed in the system and there's an operating system that's changed. I've got a guy around the corner. In fact, in my building, in my office, I have somebody who's really good in IT, take my computer down and say, you know, you know can, can help me out here. This thing, somebody's had my computer. I don't get frustrated by it. Right. Help me out. So recognizing our shortcomings, that we're not able to manage that change, find people who can help you and be willing to modify and change. Minolta, they had a, they, Minolta had a patent on the instant camera. Well, a Polaroid, excuse me, Polaroid had, a, had a, a patent on the instant camera. Guess what? Digital photography, photography was starting to come about in the era when the patent ran out. Do you think they looked at, at digital photography? No way. They filed for chapter 11 a few years later. Why? They didn't adapt to change. Yeah. Classroom training has become very expensive. Very expensive. And the cost of labor today is very expensive in North America in particular. Corporations don't want to take people out of, out of their workplace and put them in a classroom for two days to learn about business acumen. I've had to change. I said, this is not the way the market's running anymore. This is not what it's about. I have to change. I've got to find ways of delivering this online where people can do this in spare time and when, they, when there isn't a high demand on them at certain times of the day. So I've had to reinvent myself in the delivery method, failing which, what can kisses go by? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all about change, but I've had to have, have people help me. I cannot do this on my own. Yeah. Because I'm not, I'm not adept in all the technology, the stuff's going on, so I've hired people to help me. I can't do this. But in the absence of change, I'm telling you, I wouldn't be in business for long. Mm -hmm. Those are valuable tips. Thank you. So we're nearing the end of our interview, but yeah. let's take a stab five years into the future. Okay. A well-known business publication was publishing an article on your business, talking to some of your customers and suppliers. What would you like them to say? Gosh, like ask me what I want on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he tried. <laughs> um, I think directionally, I think I'd like people to say, as a result of what I learned, is changed my economic life and my freedom for the better, as a result of what I've learned from that course. Um, you know, Stephen Covey spoke about four L's. You have to live, you have to love, 
you have to learn and you have to leave a legacy. Mm. So I'm at the stage of my life in my career where I want to make sure I leave a legacy where what I've learned and what I've taught and what I share and developed over all these years, over four decades, yes, to share this with people, I would love as part of my legacy to others that they can say as a result of what I or my organization shared to change my economic life and my economic freedom for the better. That's what I'd love to see. Well, you've definitely left a legacy here with us at the Millionaire Woman Show, you. for Thank sure. You. So what is one of your favorite quotes and, and why? Actually, I recently put this up on my website. Funny you should ask that. Revenues are vanity. Profits are sanity. Cash flow is reality. And it's important, and I hang on to that statement. Now, my late father told me that one day when I was a young guy starting work. He said, never, never forget this. And it's come back, not to haunt me, but it's come back as one of my mantras, if you will. That's one of my favorites. It's important because... The people who I work with and the people who I teach and the people who listen to my, my teachings keep focusing on revenues, revenues, revenues. Yes, they're important. But if you cannot make a profit, what's, a, what's the purpose of driving revenues if your costs exceed your revenues? Mm -hmm. The third thing is you'd make a wonderful profit with fantastic revenues, run out of cash, you're out the game. So revenues are vanity because we keep focusing on it. Oh, look at my revenues. And I'm going to use the word, so what? I want you listeners to keep using the word, so what? What about my costs? And mm -hmm. I can take my costs. I want to say, so what? So what about my cash flow? Because you run out of cash, you're out the game. So that's one of my favorites because that speaks to the whole notion of being cognizant and being aware of your financial numbers and your cash flow, which is very lifeblood, not only of your business, but also of your personal economic life. You want to give back if you're a not-for-profit, if you're a small business, you want to run charities, it doesn't matter. It's all about money because without it, you're not going anywhere. Excellent. Excellent. Now, if I was to ask you what has helped you live rich from the inside out, what would that be? Oh, my word. You know, it's funny. I, I was talking about this only a few days ago with my kids. They're not kids anymore. They're all grown up. But we're talking about this. And I said, you know, the word gratefulness is such an important word. Yeah. You know, when I look around, I say, I didn't get that order. Or, you know, I keep saying, you know, I'm so blessed. I'm blessed that I have a supportive family. I'm blessed that I have wonderful clients. I'm blessed that I've done okay. I'm blessed that I'm still riding my motorcycle. I know I've got no hair, but I still ride a motorcycle. <laughs> I'm blessed and I'm grateful for so much and for the people that I surround myself with. Um, yeah, I'm grateful. And I think if people are grateful for what they have, not for what they don't have, um, I think we live far more fruitful lives. You don't have to have, and people are so governed by making more and more money all the time. And that's when, unfortunately, you spoke about culture, the culture falls. You know, they say that capital has no conscience. Yeah. Capital has no conscience. Oh, I'm moral. Yeah, but I took that, but it didn't belong to me. But this, I took it because I think I deserved it. No, culture, capital has no conscience. And I think being grateful for what we have and not getting greedy all the time by pushing the envelope and losing our, and losing our, 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 our standards and our morals, etc. in business. If we can, if we keep to the, to that form and stick to our integrity in business and our personal lives and always be grateful for what we have and for the people who support us, I think we'll have far better and fruitful lives. And I work hard at that. I'm not always successful because sometimes mm -hmm. I complain and I do, 
But every time that happens, I'll go back to my roots. So just mm -hmm. be grateful. Yeah. So Neville, how can people stay in touch with you? Well, we're going to be launching uh, this online program um, in the fall. So I don't have a landing page at the juncture. I'll have one in the next week or two. So feel free to email me and make reference to, to you, Deborah, so that I see you in the, in the, um, in the title, in the, in the line, in the content. So, yeah, contact me at Neville. That's N-E-V-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, Neville, at bizwisdom, B-I-Z-W-I-S-D-O-M.com, Neville at bizwisdom.com. And I'll be happy to share with you a landing page uh, to do a webinar and to, or to let you know about the course that I've all, either or doesn't really matter. I'll be very happy to, to share some information with you, not even about buying a course. I'll be very happy to chat with you. And we have a lot of people who want more information. I'll be happy to do a webinar with each of you. Uh, it'd be my absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Neville. You've been a wealth of wisdom and I am very grateful for you joining us today. You're most welcome, Deborah. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much, Mark. Where does time go when we have fun? <laughs> yes, we did have fun. No, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Millionaire Woman Show, where we talk about leadership, business, and human potential so you can step into being your best self, living rich from the inside out. We'd love for you to go over to iTunes, give us a five-star high five, write us a review, send us a message so Neville knows that he's had an impact on the show giving you tips and tools to create strategies in your own business and maybe perhaps your own life. And uh, we always want to know that we're leaving a legacy with every footprint, every word that we have. And also go over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com where you can get your free ebook of the 21 Habits High Achievers Kick to Achieve Success. Muhammad Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And my wish for you as always, go out and make today great.